0: Hey, welcome to week three of our series, Love and Other Messy Things. This is a series all about tracing. It's about mimicking. It's about copying. It's about learning to become more like Jesus. At first, I think when we learn to trace, for those of you who have ever traced as a child, isn't it really sloppy in the beginning? It's sloppy, it's messy, we're not very good at it, but with time, with maturity, with growth, as we continue to practice and do more, we get better at it, we excel, and we begin to look more like that which we are trying to copy In our case, we're learning to live our lives like Jesus lived his. So it's about God motivating us and working through us to look more like Jesus. And the reason the series is actually titled Love and Other Messy Things is in large part due to 1 John 3.16, which says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, I think any act of laying down your life is going to be messy. Can you agree with that? It's going to be messy, right? Anytime you give of your life for another person, it's going to be messy. But think of that first century Crucifixion experience. Jesus was beaten and mocked and scorned before he was forced to carry a a cross through the streets of Jerusalem, where he was then stripped naked. He was uh, pierced hand and feet to the cross, hoisted up upon it, mocked some more and shamed some more. Six hours later, he gave up his life and he eventually died. Horrible, horrible experience. I don't think the word messy, in fact, can fully encapsulate all that Jesus endured. I don't think messy is a harsh enough word to describe everything that Jesus went through, but this is love. Jesus laid down his life for us. This is what love is. And then, John goes on to say that this ought then to be your example of how you live your life. In the same way that Jesus laid down his life, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So Jesus laid down his life. Now go and do the same for one another. Jesus wasn't selfish, so don't be selfish either. Jesus gave up himself for another's benefit, so go and do the same. And so what I love about John's letter, and so much actually of the New Testament in general, but John's letter in particular is that throughout he is presenting the life of Jesus Christ as that life that is most human. It's the life that we are created to live. This is model humanity lived out at its best. And so all the New Testament writers are working off the conviction that humanity has willingly abandoned this love for God and love for others. We've ditched that whole thing, and we then have chosen to love ourselves, to put ourselves at the very center of our existence. And then we war against this calling to be a person bound in love all of the time, don't we? All the time I think we're warring against this. The selfish ambition, the vain conceit. We're all accustomed to living out of that. But I think what John would say is like, you know what, when you live out of selfish ambition, when you're a selfish person, you're more animal than you are human. What benefits me? What will advance me? What will take care of me? When these are the motivating questions that I kind of live my life around, we're more animal than we are human. This is why I think it seems a little odd and a little counterintuitive when John comes along and he says, hey, if you want to experience abundant, overflowing joy, if you want to be human, if you want to live the best life possible, like you were created to live your life, then lay your life down. Think of others before yourself. Don't put yourself at the center of your existence. Think of other people before you think of yourself. That is where you will experience life. But isn't that completely counterintuitive to what the world is telling us? It's counterintuitive to how we often just naturally live our lives. It's counterintuitive to the voices that we're hearing in our head. Love God, love others, my friends. It's not about you. Gather that disposition, hold it, claim it, and you will discover a beautiful life. See, when we choose to live into our selfish ambitions and our self-reigning disposition, John calls this anti-Christ. It's anti-life, it's anti-human. It's loaded terminology, but I think everything that John is trying to say is simply that when you do not live in love for other people, you are not living as you were created to live. Paul says actually the exact same thing over and over and over again, but he doesn't use the word antichrist. He uses the word flesh over and over again. So it's our flesh, right? It's our selfish, self-reigning heart, which is trying tooth and nail to pull us away from the Spirit of God and the calling of God to be genuinely human in our lives. See, the world is going to try to convince us that there is one way to live, the way of selfishness, the way that puts me at the center, the way that climbs the corporate ladder, and I don't care who I'm trampling over to get there the way that says it's all about me and I don't care how it hurts you, the way that puts me at the very center of all things, that is what the world is trying to convince us to live our lives like. And I think it's so subtle how this happens, right? I think if we were to really do an inventory of our day and of our week, we could find time and time and time and time again how we have been selfish. I can't be the only one, right? I think if we were to really do an honest inventory of our life, we would probably realize even this morning that there are several instances where we chose ourselves. We said I'm going to put myself at the center, and I'm not. I'm not going to care how it affects my children. I'm not going to care how it affects my spouse. I'm not going to care how it affects my neighbor or the people I'm driving alongside. I am going to choose myself. I think if we were honest, we would just realize because the sinful nature, this this self reigning mentality, is so subtle. I was reminded of this of this week when my, I was talking to my mom on the phone, and, and she reminded me of that when I was three years old. Um, she took me with her and my dad to a carpet store to pick out new carpet for our house, and. You know, there's this tension in all of us, but I think in three-year-olds in particular, right? For those of you who ever had a three-year-old, you, you know the tension that is, that is going on in their little hearts and in their little minds. Whose voice am I going to listen to? Who is the authority, right? Whose throne am I going to allow to remain intact? Is it going to be my throne? Is it going to be my parents' throne? God's throne? Three-year-olds. Got to love them, Right? But at this really young age, I think we're deciding if our throne and our kingdom are worth fighting for or we're going to bend to the authority of another. And so my parents, of course, talked with me about, you know, Ross, stay stay put, you know, don't wander off, stay close to me. I, you know, we're in, a, we're in a carpet store, we're in a factory, like, you know, stay close, I don't want you to get lost. But I didn't listen, of course, because I'm a three-year-old. And any chance I got, I was going to do my own thing. I didn't want to do what I was told. I was the king, I was the boss, and I was waging war against my parents. Psychologists talk about the stages of life in a lot of different terminologies, but the theology of this is really simple. We are born with a self reigning disposition. We are born with a heart that is bent in on itself. We are born with a heart that says, Choose yourself above everything else. And don't care how it impacts other people. Be selfish. That's okay. And so, what do I do as a little three year old? My parents are talking to the salesman. I see that there is an opportunity in front of me. And so I take it and I, gar- and, I, and, I, and I go and I climb up a stack of carpet rolls and I crawl inside a carpet roll and I fall asleep. Now, imagine that you are a parent in a carpet store who turned your back for a second and then you turn your back again and your child is no longer there. You guys ever been there before? Uh, maybe not at a carpet store, but you've been there at a different store before. You've lost your child and you begin to freak out, right? Your mind just goes crazy. What has happened to my child? All of these scenarios go into your head. You start frantically running down all the aisles in the store looking for your child and your child is nowhere to be found. And so an hour later, in a heaping sob of tears, you call the police and say, my child has been kidnapped. And then above you, about 10 feet above you, you hear this little voice. Hi, Ma. <laughs> there are they, they love me. My parents love me deeply, but <laughs> I didn't want to listen to my parents, right? The tension of a three-year-old is the same tension that we experience as adults. I don't want to do what I'm told. I don't know. I don't want to live the life that God is calling me to live. You know, I don't want to live in love. I want to be selfish. I don't want to listen to my parents. I want to do my own thing. And when we do that, it not only hurts us, it hurts others. Jump seven years into the future, I'm at, a, I'm at a family reunion with my family, and we're catching up and you know chatting, and the parents are catching up and doing all the things that parents like to do, the, the gabbing and the blabbing that 10-year-olds could care less about. And, and so um, there's a room at this, at this community center that we're having this reunion. It's kind of like our fellowship hall, so it's kind of like a medium-sized room, and it's got ceiling tiles, and we find all these dodgeballs, and, and we start playing dodgeball, and we eventually get bored with that. And my cousin notices that there's a, a tile missing in the ceiling. He's like, hey... You know, 10 points to whoever can get the, the ball up into the, the ceiling tile. I'm like, I'll take that, okay. So we start playing this game. We all aim at the, at the hole in the ceiling, and eventually we lose all 10 dodgeballs up in the ceiling. <laughs> now, we didn't think much of this except for the fact that we could no longer play any games. We had to go now make small talk with the adults. But put yourself into the shoes of the workers of that community center. How annoyed would you be if you came into work the next day looking for the dodgeballs and tol- you were told that they were scattered up among the ceiling tiles? You had no idea where in the ceiling. You were just told that a bunch of kids had thrown them all up there and now you have to go get your ladder out and fish for all the dodgeballs in the ceiling. It, it would take you all, all day long and it would be super annoying, right? Now there were plenty of people at this, um, at this, at this family gathering that, that heard about what we had done and their response was, you know what? Boys will be boys. Hey, you know, boys are just being boys. It's just what boys do. Who cares that they were inconsiderate? Who cares that they were selfish? Who cares that they didn't think of the the workers who are going to have to now go up and spend their day looking for dodgeballs in the ceiling tiles? Who cares? They're just being boys. It's just what boys do. Boys will be boys. It's okay, you know. Selfish thoughts lead to selfish ambitions, which lead to selfish actions, and it's just part of being human in America, so live it out. Boys will be boys. It's no big deal. We're inconsiderate. It doesn't matter how our actions affect other people. Boys will be boys. But there were other people uh, at the family reunion, including my parents, who said, no, I'm not going to tolerate that. That's not human. That's more animal than it is human. I'm not going to tolerate that. Ross, you and your cousins are going to go at least, if you're not going to fish the dodgeballs out of the ceiling yourself, you're going to go at least claim what you did and apologize for your actions. The tension in all of us. I don't care how my 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 f- actions affect other people. Isn't there a tension? It's not just in three year olds. It's not just in ten year olds. And isn't, isn't it in us as well as adults? The tension, the tension that we are all wrestling with all of the time. These are a th- one of two of a thousand examples that take place. I think of our flesh being lived out. My selfish ambition, my vain conceit, my my self motivation. It's all about me at the end, and I don't really care how it affects other people. These are all examples of how that leaks out, and it's so subtle. Oh, you're bored? Then, you know, just go create chaos for somebody else. Who really cares? Don't bother considering your actions will impact others. As long as you're having a good time, that's all that really matters. Oh, you know, you're just a child who doesn't want to listen to your family? Who cares? Just go live whatever kind of life you want. We hear it all of the time. Every day, our actions are are bumping up against the lives of other people. We make choices and they bump up against the lives of other people. Every day we make thousands of choices that are either founded in love and consideration for the well-being and the betterment of other humans, or they are born in selfishness and unconcern and my own selfish desires and my own flesh winning out. See, one way is the way of love, one way is the way of the flesh, one way is the human way, one way is the animal way. And if you want to be a follower of Jesus, my friends, you're going to have to choose the way of love. So if you've been around these past couple of weeks, you'll know that there are a few principles that are guiding us in this series. One is that following Jesus is not about what we do, right? This doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility. It simply means that our acceptance before God is not conditioned on what we do. It's really all about what he has done and what he continues to do in us. But isn't this a great mystery? It's a a great mystery because if our life is to be marked in love, which is something that we do, right, it's not something we just talk about or hypothesize about or form committees about or pray about or, or discuss in our Bible studies. You know, so oftentimes we talk about love, but we never actually do it. But true love is love that is applied. True love is love that is lived out. See, love is active, love does, but following Jesus is about what he has done and what he continues to do. And so the question is, how does this work? What actually is our responsibility as followers of Jesus? And so over the next two weeks, today and next week, we're gonna answer that question. And let me begin by asking you a question that I asked my computer screen this week as I saw a commercial of a guy who was selling pumpkins. He was claiming that he he grew like the most amazing pumpkins in the area and that everybody should come to his farm because he has the best pumpkins and he grew his pumpkins. And so my question that I asked my computer screen was well, who grew the pumpkins? Who grows the pumpkin? Now, certainly, this farmer would say that he grows the pumpkin. And certainly, he may have tended to the field. He may have cleared it of rocks. He may have pruned off wild shoots. He may have fertilized it and watered the pumpkins. He may have built a scarecrow for the pumpkin patch, and he may have built a fence around that pumpkin patch. But, my friends, he didn't grow the pumpkins. Right? He certainly nurtured them and cared for them and attended to their growth. He created an environment where they could grow, But he didn't grow the pumpkin. The vine grows the pumpkin. The roots grow the pumpkin. The the plant itself grows the pumpkin. And like that, we have a responsibility to nurture and to attend to and to care for our own growth and the production of the fruit in our life. My friends, the fruit that we bear is the produce of God's Spirit in us. I tell you that to, hear, to clear up a very common conception about one of the most classic passages in all of Scripture, that being Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We know the fruit of the Spirit. If you grew up in church, you probably sung songs about them. If you're a Bible reader, you probably know the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we talk about these as great Christian virtues and things that we should aspire to. If we recognize that our household is not at peace, we should think, you know, about how we are contributing to the chaos and we should change. We should do something different. We should do better. We should change our behavior. If you know that your driving makes you impatient, then you should change, right? If you know that you're lacking in joy, then you should try harder. If you know that you are not gentle, then you should work at that. You can do this, we'd say. These are Christian virtues that we should aspire to, but these are not the fruit of my own effort. You notice that, right? And this is so important. These are not the fruit of my trying hard. These are not the fruit of my will. These are not the fruit of my own effort. These are the fruit of the Spirit. These are produce that the Spirit provides us. That is a great distinction that needs to be made. And this is something that the Galatian church was really having a hard time understanding. On the one hand, the Galatian Christians were coming from a very loose moral culture where the Romans um, on their day, because the gods did not provide any moral standard, they didn't have a moral standard. So you could basically do whatever you wanted in um, the Gentile world of Galatia during their day, and that would be accepted. But on the other hand, they were entering into an unnecessarily strict Christian culture. So you got super loose morals on one hand, you got super legal structure on the other. Now we talked about this two weeks ago um, when we were in Galatians chapter 2, how the Christians in Galatia were being told that in order to follow Jesus, if you want to first become a Christian, you need to first become a Jew. You need to become circumcised, you need to start obeying the law. And so in chapter 2, I'm sorry, in chapter 5 verse 2, Paul tells them Mark my words, can you hear his angst? Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. He is so passionate about this issue. And just a couple verses later, he goes on to say that all those who tell people to go be circumcised, they should just go and emasculate themselves. He says that, that's in scripture, that's in the Bible. You should read the Bible. It's crazy stuff. Can you understand his passion for this, though? Obviously, he talked about this in chapter 2. He's still talking about it in chapter 5. Do not be circumcised. You don't need to. There's no point in it. Do not follow the law, because if you begin to follow the law, you are condemning yourself, because nobody can follow the law. Do not enslave yourself to the law. But remember, they're also coming from a culture that didn't provide any moral standard, because the gods didn't provide a moral framework. And so in verse 13, Paul tells them, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, right? That selfish ambition, that vain conceit, that self-motivation, that self-reigning heart. Don't use your freedom to go and do whatever you want. See, Paul is dealing with this spectrum of ideas ranging from legalism on one end all the way down to licentiousness or license on the other. Both think that legalism and license have found the solution to the sinful problem, the sinful problem that puts me solely at the center of my existence. Both legalism and license think that they have an answer and a solution to that problem. And isn't it the same today? I mean, we haven't really progressed too much beyond these two options within our, within our thinking. Some people will say that, you know, if you really want to follow Jesus, then it's really about how you dress and what you eat and what you drink or what you watch and what you listen to and certainly what you abstain from, right? Because um, Christianity is really about what you don't do and what you do condemn rather than it is what you were for. A lot of people might say that. When I was an adjunct professor of Bible in a university in Minnesota, I had a a question on my exam that said, what is the mark of a Jesus follower? You know, what is the sign that somebody is following Jesus? And response after response after response was the Jesus fish. I'm like, seriously, people, have you learned nothing in this semester of class? Like, uh, the Jesus fish. You know, I, I got the Jesus fish on my car. You know, I got the restoration bumper sticker. I wear the restoration t-shirt, it must mean I'm a Jesus follower, right? And we think these external things, the things that we do, are going to help us solve the problem of the sinful nature. They're important, right? But they're not the proof that Christ's life is in us. Others will say, no, you know, we've been met with such an incredible grace that it doesn't even matter what you do anymore. That the grace of God is so beautiful and it is so incredible and that what you do has been met by the grace of God. It doesn't even matter how you live your life anymore. And so God will forgive whatever you do. So please, just slap Jesus on the side of your life and go about your life. However you want to live it, that's fine. As long as Jesus is a part of it, as long as you've given him a sliver, that's fine. But both legalism, which says, I follow the rules and so therefore I'm accepted, and license, which says, I can do whatever I want and I am accepted, both put me at the very center of my existence. They both put me at the very center. Life is still out about me. But remember, it being all about me is the problem. That's the problem we're dealing with. And so both legalism and license are prisons, prisons. They actually go to enslave us to ourselves. These aren't solutions to the problem of our self-reigning disposition. These aren't, pro- these aren't solutions to the problem of our, of our self-reigning heart and our selfishness problem. They actually serve to advance the problem. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They, they, they say that they have a solution. They say that they'll give you freedom, but they actually enslave you more. But Paul tells us that we have been set free. Not just in theory, but we have actually been set free. It is for freedom, Paul says, that you, I'm sorry, that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that we have been set free. So stand firm then and do not be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You've been released from the bondage of sin and death. You've trusted in Christ. You've been released from sin. That is something that is true of you. Let that seep in just a second, all right? If you don't believe this yet, you have been set free from the bondage of sin. In Jesus Christ. Why then, now that you have been set free, because of what Jesus accomplished, would you go back into slavery by either your pursuit of the law and trying to be good enough, or your belief that you can just live whatever kind of life you like? That's not human. That's not freedom. And so what Paul is so eager to address with the Galatian Christians is that following following Jesus and experience the abundance of his life doesn't even fit on that spectrum, but it's marked by one single word, love. See, there's a new way to be human provided by Jesus. There's a new culture to be a part of. There's a new purpose for our life. There is a new love that ought to be born within us. And so Paul, before addressing this new life of the Spirit, he looks at the enslavement. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious, right? The, the sinful nature, the selfish ambition, the putting you at the very center of your life, they are obvious. And we know this as we look at our day-to-day experience. We know when we're being selfish. We know what sin looks like. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. He's not going to give an infinite list of examples, but he's going to look at the, the, Christian, uh, the culture that the Christians in Galatia are coming from, and he's going to say, hey, here are some of the most classic examples in our culture of what the acts of the flesh look like. Sexual immorality. Do whatever you want with whomever you want, whenever you want. It doesn't matter if there's consent or covenant. Do what makes you feel good. Impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred and discord and jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So when you're living out of your own self-reigning kingdom, of course, you are at war against the kingdom of God. And so you cannot inherit the kingdom of God when your throne is still very much intact. You see, this life puts me solely at the center of, And it needs to be put to death. It needs to die. And then Christ's Spirit needs to be allowed to be born and to grow within me. See, when my hands are so full of my own selfish pursuit, I cannot hold the life of Christ. When my selfishness remains intact, I cannot hold the life of Christ. I must let go. I must surrender, which means that I confess that I am self-centered. I admit, God, that I'm selfish. I admit that I am self-reigning, that I have my throne very much intact, and that I live my life out of that disposition that I'm trying to satisfy my own selfish desires. I I confess it, and then I say, God, you know what, I'm going to let it go. I don't want this life anymore. I repent of it. I turn away from these actions. I begin to live differently. I begin to make new choices as I am empowered by the Spirit of God living in me. And so Paul says that the Spirit of God is like a plant rooted in our soul and it will begin to produce fruit in us. The fruit of the Spirit, he says, in contrast to the acts of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is. Now notice that this is singular. The fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits of the Spirit are, but the fruit of the Spirit is. Right? This isn't a list that Paul is providing. This is another misconception, actually. What the Spirit does in us is produce one action, and that action is to love, You see, in the, in the original Greek, if you were to look at a Greek manuscript today, you would find that there is just one long string of Greek letters after another. There's no punctuation, there's no commas, there's no periods, and there's no question marks, there's no parentheses or anything. It's very actually confusing to read and to, and to transcribe the original documents. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and then at that point, Paul would have probably have put like a parentheses or a colon. He would have said the fruit of the Spirit is love. Parentheses. Here are eight examples now. Just like the acts of the flesh, here are just a ton of examples of how the selfish nature works. Here is eight examples of what it means to live out love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's not an exhaustive list either. He could have added more to that, but here are just some examples of what it means to live out of love. Love defines all of these attributes. Love defines all of these characteristics. Love holds all of these together. And so all of all of the things that the Spirit does in us, the most prominent and profound thing that it does in us is empower us to love, to give of ourselves, to lay down our lives so that another's life might be improved. You see, love then ought to be the motivation. Ought it not? Love ought to be our motivation because this is the Example that Jesus gives us, but is also the one activity that defeats the selfishness. If love is about dying to myself so that another's life might be better, that is the only activity that defeats the selfish pursuit. And Paul says, you know what? Against these kind of things, against this love that is lived out in these ways, there is no law against this. Right? The law was, was made to confine people. The law served to confine people to a life that they couldn't live. The law was a prison, Paul would say. But live your life in love, and you will find yourself to be free. And then, provide, and then Paul provides a statement, a definition of those who follow Jesus, right? Something we've talked about in this series already. It's not legalist. It's not licentious. No, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh that puts me at the very center, the selfish ambitions, the selfish pursuits, those have been put to death. And because it's been put to death, because it's surrendered and let go, it no longer has mastery over me. So therefore, since we live by the Spirit, I'm not living by my selfish ambition anymore. I'm living by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. See, as the Spirit moves forward, move along with the Spirit. As the Spirit compels you, then move along with it. Respond to it. I said, did you know that when you became a Jesus follower, if you are a Jesus follower, you receive the full gift of God's Spirit, you receive all of the Holy Spirit that you're going to get. I didn't recognize this at first. I didn't realize this when I first became a Christian that I received all of the Holy Spirit that I was going to get. This is a gift that God has given you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the totality of the Holy Spirit living in you. God didn't just give you a little bit as a trial to see if you could handle it. God gave it all to you. But in the beginning, God's spirit goes to war against the selfish, self running heart you just repented of. It's like tracing, right? It's like in the beginning, I'm sloppy and I'm inconsistent and I can't really stay within the lines. But as I mature, I get better. And in the beginning, right, we're drinking spiritual milk and so we don't have a lot of maturity. And at times, maybe our lives don't look fully like Jesus. Our lives aren't living in love. And so my constant prayer, I mentioned this last week, is that there would be less of me and more of Jesus. Less of me, more of Jesus. Less of me, more of Jesus. This isn't me asking God to give me more of the Holy Spirit. This is saying, God, I recognize that my life is lived 90% of the time for myself, right? I, I, I I don't give a lot in love. I live for myself. I'm very selfish, but God, I want you to close that gap. I want there to be less of me, and I want there to be more of Jesus. It's not that I'm getting more of the Holy Spirit, but I want the Holy Spirit to take over more, I want to give more control, I want to surrender more, I want to submit more, I want to give God more control over my life. This means that we are then, I think, responsible to cultivate the Holy Spirit. If that is my genuine heart, right, if that is my pursuit, if I really want God to take over more, if I want God to be more in control, then I need to cultivate the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I need a partner in its growth. And so the question that I often ask myself, and I often f- fail miserably at answer, answering this, is what am I doing to help cultivate the Spirit's work in my life? My friends, what are you doing to help cultivate the Spirit's work in your life? Are you <clears throat> in a house group? <clears throat> are you occupying your time with other believers who are inspiring you and encouraging you and spurring you on? Are you meeting regularly with them? Are you praying? Are you reading God's word? Are you intentionally serving somewhere? Are you giving more of your money away to organizations you believe in? Are you telling people about the life of Jesus you have received? How are you working to cultivate the work of God's spirit in your life? See, Jesus said in John 15 that if we want to bear a lot of fruit, then we must abide, we must remain in him, because apart from him, we can't do anything. And we know that to be true, right? Because it is the fruit of God's spirit that is produced in us. It is not the fruit of our own trying hard. But he also goes on to say that in order for the fruit to increase, the branches need to be pruned back. In other words, they need to be cultivated. They need to be taken care of. They need to be attended to. And so is there an area of your life that needs to be pruned? Is there something that you are doing that you need to give up? Are there people in your life that you probably need to spend less time with? See, if you want to live by the Spirit, then you need to keep in step with the Spirit. And so have you ever found yourself getting lazy with prayer? Have you ever found yourself um, getting lazy with reading the Bible? Maybe you were once in a group, but no, you're no longer in a group. Have you ever found yourself, like, just kind of letting go a little bit and keeping up with where the Spirit is leading? Because here's the thing, when the Spirit continues to move and we fall behind, that is when we fall back into selfish habits. It's when we fall back into self-motivating habits. And don't we find then ourselves a little bit more edgy? Man, I'm not in my word. I haven't been in my word in a long time. I haven't been praying consistently. I haven't been seeking God's life. I I quit that group because I just didn't have time for it anymore. And you know what? Now I find myself edgy at home. I'm shorter with my kids. I can't stand my kids. I'm yelling constantly. I'm constantly angry and bitter. I feel like my house is just in more and more chaos. I'm just a more harsh person, you know? There's just less peace around me. I'm succumbing easier to temptation, certainly. I'm bitter, I'm callous, I'm more easily depressed. Just in general, you know, I stop holding doors for people. I stop, my manners have kind of disappeared. I'm no longer thankful. I no longer say please. (laughs) The glow of kindness that I feel like I used to have is just kind of faded a little bit. See, all of these things are the subtlety of the self-reigning life. We don't often think about them as the selfish ambition, but that's exactly what they are. And when we lag behind where the Spirit is going, that is the trap that we are going to fall into. We will fall back into the life that we have given up. We will call the selfish ambition out of the grave and it will begin to wield its ugly head. You see, and when we fail to keep up with where the Spirit is going, Paul says, that we will fall into conceit. We'll fall into provoking each other. We'll fall into envying each other. We'll not be content with where we are, but we will just poke and prod and dig. We'll be self-conceited. We'll have selfish motivation. We'll wield its ugly head again, poking, stabbing one another. We'll never be content with where we are in life because we do not keep in step with the Spirit. I'm with the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this as we sing one final song together this morning. So here's the thing. The pursuit of Christ is a daily activity of surrender. Right? We need to recognize that. We need to own that because it's true. When we fail to keep in step, when we fail to align ourselves with the work of God's Spirit in us, we will lag behind, and the sinful, selfish nature will begin to grow. And so I hope that we can be a people who are cultivating the work of God's Spirit in us, that we can become more like Jesus, but it is a day to day activity. Jesus said that if you want to follow after me, you must die to yourself, not just one time at a camp retreat when I was 13 years old, not just on my baptism day. What does he say? Anybody know? Daily. Daily die to yourself. And so, Heavenly Father, I recognize that in my hands, I hold my own selfish ambition. I recognize that in my life, there is a part of me that is fighting tooth and nail to put myself at the center, and it's death, it's edginess, it's bitterness, it's anger, it's resentment, it's callousness. It's ugly, God, and I, and, I don't, and I don't like it. And so, God, I recognize my hands are full of my own selfish ambitions. And God, today is the day that I surrender. I give it up. I let go, Father. I let it go. And instead, God, I want to help cultivate your spirit in me. God, I cry out for your spirit. You say that when I trust in you, you will give me the gift of your spirit. God, today is the day I trust in you. Give me your spirit, Father, and may I then choose to help cultivate the growth of your spirit within me. You say that, There are essentially two ways to live in life. We can live like animals or we can live like humans, Father, and I want to be human. I want to be as you have created me to be. I want to live like Jesus who laid down his life and Father, now you are calling me to do the same. But I can't do it out of my own power, God. I recognize this and so God, I cry out to you to do more in me. Less of me, more of you, less of me, more of you, less of me, more of you. Daily, Father, may this be my prayer. Minute by minute, may this be my prayer so that you can live within me and I might grow to become more like you. Father, as I trace, as I copy, as I mimic, may I do so in love. I do pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.